This is Effective Teaching with Dan Jackson from TeachersPD.net, giving you effective teaching and learning strategies for your classroom. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Effective Teaching Podcast. Today, I have a special guest with me. Uh, Tom Markham is joining me all the way from America, and he is the founder of PBL Global. He is the former associate director of the Buck Institute for Education and is also an author of multiple books around project-based learning. So welcome, Tom. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. Glad to be here, Dan. So can you give us just a quick overview of the uh, seven steps to creating a project-based learning unit? Yes. Everybody who's doing high-quality project-based learning pretty much follows the same protocol, if you will, for designing a project. Uh, I put a lot of emphasis on the first step, which is finding a challenge or an authentic challenge that is going to engage students deeply. Uh, So it starts with deciding what the challenge is and what the problem would be, and then capturing that problem in a driving question, or what I call a wicked problem, a problem that really drives the project, becomes the basis for the project, which, by the way, is something that It's not well understood in PBL by all teachers, but at the heart of every good project lies a good problem to be solved. And that's a very good test for teachers to use when they're designing their project, particularly with each other, as they're talking to each other, what is the problem to be solved? Because if they can clarify that for themselves, they're going to have a much stronger project. Now, once you've uh, drafted the question and created the question, then The fastest way to design a project is to go to the third step, which is to decide what the students are going to do at the end and what kind of work they're going to turn in or what kind of products they're going to produce in the project, which normally includes uh, a major product, some sort of showcase project or some sort of public product that goes before the community or parents or classmates or a meaningful audience that encourages students to do their best work. And then the next step, uh, once you sort of have those in place, you begin to think, all right, how will I assess the project and know if the project is good or not good and what's the quality? So you work on some sort of assessment system and that assessment system in PBL always includes high quality performance rubrics because we're measuring not only what students know in PBL, we're measuring what they do. And to measure what people do, you need to have a performance rubric And which is another key to high quality projects to have uh, deep, uh, well formulated, explicit rubrics that really tell students exactly what they're supposed to do. So, rubrics are another key to a high quality project. I put that the rubrics right up there with a good problem to be solved. The rubrics really determine what the teaching and learning is going to look like, and which is the next step, which is to create a teaching plan and start the project off right and to sort of set the project up, if you will, and set the problem in the students' minds and get some ideas from them on how they're going to solve the problem, what possible outcomes there might be, and what possible solutions there are to the problem. And the next step is to turn them loose on the doing, which uh, normally takes place in PBL through teams. Uh, I like to use the term teams, not groups, uh, although groups is far more common when teachers are talking about PBL. Another key to great PBL is having students function as an actual team and using all the tools of teamwork that are normal in the adult world. Accountability, responsibility, 
doing your work, setting goals, discussing the potential outcomes, going through a draft and revision process, going through design thinking. If teachers want to use design thinking, it works very well for teams. And uh, having students go through a fairly deep process of learning, exploring, drafting, designing, and producing a final product or a final answer. That is one part of PBL that can be problematic for teachers because many teachers are have not been really well trained in facilitating and designing teams. They're used to groups, but we're looking at these groups of students working at a higher level than they have in the past. And once they come up with their products and what their solutions are, then they're going to show those products or solutions to an audience. And uh, I call this uh, stage uh, the mastery level, which is expecting them to perform at a high level. And by high level, not only high level in terms of solving the problem, but also high level in terms of their mastery of the vocabulary of the discipline, uh, knowing the concepts, showing that they have learned the fundamentals and the facts that are associated with any subject or topic or unit, and then displaying that knowledge in some sort of public forum. So those are the seven steps, and if teachers do each of those well, they have a usually have a terrific project. Thank you so much, Tom. Uh, within the project-based learning process then, which aspects or what is it about it that you think is actually most conducive to creating lifelong learners? Like how, how does this actually go about? What's the, what's the best bit within this that helps our students to be well-equipped for their future in terms of helping them to be able to learn in their future? That's a very good question, and it's an interesting question right now because I feel that PBL is in transition, if you will. So. PBL became popular maybe 20 years ago. It took about 10 years for it to really become popular. In the last five years, it's begun to really accelerate. But a lot of PBL that is done now is still designed just to teach academic work. And if you might call it a hangover from traditional schools, whereas the next stage really is to treat PBL as it was originally designed as a human development process. I call it strengths-focused or strength-based PBL. And I think it's an excellent way to incorporate a strengths-based approach in the curriculum into your projects because you can build in, easily build into projects, individual growth, personal development, the kind of reflective exercises that lead students to become more curious or more resilient or more empathetic or any of those deeper qualities that we would associate with lifelong learning, in addition to becoming better problem solvers and more agile in their thinking. So it's agile thinking, problem solving, as well as I call problem finding, and the ability to self-direct yourself through curiosity and resiliency, and the, 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 again, those deeper qualities that really drive success in the workforce these days. Yeah, that's really good. I, I like how you've really focused in there on the strengths-based approach, on the strengths-focused approach, where you're really looking at trying to develop the whole student. And I, I think that's one of the things that, we actually often neglect across our schools that we tend to shift it into its own little isolated area, I find, in schools. So there'll be a well-being subject or well-being period or something uh, that a school will run every week for their students, but it's seen as an aside thing to everything else that's going on at school, whereas what you're talking about here is really a blending of that well-being into what we're actually doing in our classrooms and linking it in with this whole project-based approach to education. That's a very big discussion, bigger than the podcast here, but I agree with you because PBL, to my mind, is a vehicle for redesigning education towards more whole child approach 
and towards integrating academics and well-being and human development into one sort of seamless approach to teaching and learning, Will. And I have seen plenty of projects that do exactly that. So I know it's possible. And that's the direction I'm going. Can you give us a bit more details that if we're going to go about implementing this strengths-focused approach to PBL, what does that actually involve? What should I do as a teacher? Well, to me, it, it starts with knowing your students very well, developing a kind of uh, what I call a kind and caring classroom, which is actually critical to having good PBL because it's very much a student-teacher partnership that takes place in a project. And the way you get your best performance is the same way that a good manager in industry would get it, not by ordering people about, but by actually establishing a relationship that draws the best out of them. Uh, and then identifying some way, know, either knowing your students well enough or actually using surveys or other instruments to for students to set goals, determine what their own objectives are as a person, uh, where do they want to grow, uh, knowing students well enough so that you can set that up and in a project they can practice those, they can reflect on those. A lot of that growth takes place in student teams. So when I do student teams and develop rubrics for collaboration, I include such things as curiosity, work ethic, and empathy. The, the, what we normally associate with social emotional learning or well-being aspects of the curriculum, but which in fact now are the new curriculum for us as educators, given what the world is looking for in terms of quality work in the workplace. Uh, so we're really developing what I call a new curriculum, and that new curriculum is no longer, as you say, going to be well-being stuck at 3 o'clock and 4 o'clock in the afternoon. It's going to be integrated into subjects, as it should be. It's definitely the way I think it should be in our future, actually making sure that we're addressing our whole students and not just their heads. You know, my dad actually yeah. has this phrase that he uses all the time where he talks about head, heart, and hands. And so he talks about when, you, when you're trying to do things with our students or whenever you're thinking through any kind of academic stuff, he actually he talks about you know, there's your head aspect, then there's also what you, lo what you know should then affect your heart uh, or your attitudes, and then that should then also affect what you do. And he says yeah, you learn from each of them. So something might happen that will affect your, your attitude, which will then affect your head, or there'll be something that you do which will then affect your head as well. And I think if we continue to view those three things, you know, together that's really that's almost what you're talking about there that the whole you know, all aspects because probably project-based learning is very hands-on well-being is very much about attitudes and the whole the whole person as well as you know, your academics which is also what we generally do uh, with our education well it's uh, to my mind has to happen now hand heads heart has been around since the 20s rudolf steiner that was his mantra in waldorf education so we've known about this for something like 100 years uh, but we've now reached a point where it has to become a reality if we want to prepare students to actually contend and succeed in the world that they're going to become adults in because those are necessary qualities. So the old model simply doesn't do the job to my mind. Yeah. Well, it's funny though. You, it's our current model that's not doing the job because you're actually referring back to an old model <laughs> when, you, when you're talking about Steiner there. That's, it's an old model that was created quite a while ago. And, yeah. and I actually find that quite often when I go through stuff, uh, whenever I'm looking at you know, the more modern and the, the, the new steps of education of what I'm reading, uh, they often actually are quoting people, you know, they'll be quoting Dewey or someone from a long time ago who's actually, they had insights already, they knew that these changes needed to happen and it's just taken us so long to shift out of our industrial age, so to speak, with education uh, to really get into this. So 
Um, if I'm a teacher, I'm, I'm going into my classroom yeah, next week or in where I am at the moment. We actually have a couple of weeks' holidays right now. So where would a teacher begin if they wanted to actually implement this? If they're going to start to integrate well-being, that head, heart, hands type approach to what they're doing with their students in PBL, what's the first thing that they should be looking to get stuck into to get that prepped? Well, the first thing they should do is to distinguish in their own minds the difference between the projects that they're accustomed to and project-based learning because it's two different subjects. So project-based learning is really incorporates some of typically what we think about students doing projects, but it uses a very strong methodology to let's say, encourage much better outcomes. So use of rubrics, use of a problem or a question, making sure that's an authentic challenge. So those elements, teachers need to take account of those and learn what those are. And uh, they can read books. They can take my online course. They can do whatever they'd like to do. They can ask colleagues. But however they're going to get there, they must distinguish between old-style projects and project-based learning. Because old-style projects, well, as you mentioned the term yourself, hands-on. I actually don't use the term hands-on anymore. PBL is minds-on. It's minds-on. It's people engaged in deep problem-solving. And that's what you're trying to do. So knowing the differences, again, however they're going to get that information, they need to get that information. Second step is plunge in. Take the plunge, I call it. And just design a project as best you can and see what happens and learn as you go with the students. You will, it's like uh, medicine. You will do no harm. It will be all right. Uh, the students will learn, enjoy. They'll give you feedback, and you'll get better at it. It's okay to just start. Now, that requires a little bit of a mind shift. Uh, sometimes teachers don't know exactly where to begin. And what I encourage them to do is think, well, what is it in the subject I teach that is very interesting to me that I would love to have my students know or appreciate? And I'm not just talking about the fact-based, test-based kinds of answers, but, you know, if you were a science teacher or a physics teacher, what is it about the universe that it interests you? So go for some wonder, go for some interesting parts of your curriculum that attracted you. That's always a good place to do a project. And the second one, ask students, what are they interested in? What might they do? I uh, actually often use a term with people who are doing teaching through projects, project-based learning. I call them teacher as co-learner because you're not, in, you're not in charge of all the answers any longer. What you are in charge of is a process of facilitating growth through an experience we call a project. So you are part of that process. means you can ask students, well, how much you do this? What might be interest you? It's perfectly okay to do that. And in fact, if you look at the world as it now exists, you and I could go into any classroom and have 10 students who knew something more about something than we did. If you notice, or you've heard this statistic, uh, 80% of people under age 18, when they need to know something, go on YouTube. So they know things. They certainly do. So what that means, that changes the role of the teacher dramatically from the giver of information and the fount of knowledge to facilitating growth together. Yeah. Yeah. I actually often talk about teachers as coaches because I have yeah. a sports background. When you look at coaches, you actually, you see them Yeah, at, at one point when, when you've got that beginning learner, you, you're talking about you know, teaching skill, modeling stuff, but then also the student has a go and then they develop. But then as they get into it and as they actually get better, you look at elite coaches, they're not talking about skills. They're not helping their players, but they're actually looking at 
you know, the well-being of their of their players and they're helping them to design and see bigger pictures and they're learning from their players as much as they're providing insights, I suspect, because really your players are on the fields, they're getting that extra bit of insight, they know how they feel, they know which bits they need to work on and that's, I think if, if we shift that kind of mindset into our classroom, which is I think partly what you're talking about there with shifting into you know we are not the ones who know everything and that's definitely been the case for a long time now uh, i think that actually happened before youtube because people used to just google stuff before youtube didn't they uh, it's just it's one of those things where we we've taken a while to realize that uh, although we need to make sure in general teachers you know, we have our syllabus or we have our curriculums that we need to by law make sure we're covering but at the same time we, we need to shift to the point where actually our students can find that information without us uh, we're just creating that learning process or those learning experiences for our students to actually get the learning from it's not passive learning anymore it needs, it needs to shift away from from that passiveness well i have recently uh, been thinking along those lines a lot and i have objected to the notion that teachers when you describe them as a guide on the side it's not an adequate description of what a teacher in inquiry and project-based learning does anymore. So I'm actually thinking in terms of five roles. One is the practitioners, and that's knowing about the nuts and bolts of inquiry and project-based learning. The other is facilitation and knowing how to draw the best out of students. The third is this coaching role that you're talking about, which does have overlap with coaching analogies for sure. The fourth one is this mentor, what I call a mentor role, where you really have to dig into a little bit of the personality and the psychology of your students these days. Because if we're talking about teaching someone to be a lifelong learner and be curious, well, first of all, you better be curious yourself if you're planning on teaching that to a young person 14 years old. So that it actually brings up different qualities that you need in yourself. And the fifth area I think is so important is turning project-based learning into a more of a purposeful endeavor not just to pass tests or get ready for university exams, but uh, incorporating sustainable development goals, change, I call it the change maker role, more purposeful learning, uh, like the Dark Skies project that is currently going on in Australia, which has been so successful. Yeah, yeah, it's a great project. I see that Dark Skies project. And if you do want to find out more about that project, I'm pretty sure there's still links in my podcast I did with Kelly Pfeiffer. Feel free to go back and have a look at that if you're listening right now. So... <laughs> Tom, you're coming out to Australia in November, uh, and I have the privilege of actually hosting one of your project-based learning workshops in Sydney. Can you give us a quick rundown of what you do in your actual workshops that you run? Well, let's talk about what I don't do. I don't talk all day. That's good. It's a learning <laughs> and doing. So what I, what I like to do in a day is, first of all, share best practices and methods for high-quality PBL, what I, what I just referred to as the practitioner level. So, so people leave uh, with a clear sense of what are best practices for creating great projects and knowing what those are. Now, in a one-day workshop, you leave with awareness of the knowledge. And I also give participants lots of ideas on how they create what I call their ecosystem. What are the resources they'll need to grow and do better with PBL and take these practices and, and use them successfully in the classroom? There is an opportunity in a six- to seven-hour workshop for for teachers to at least get as far as deciding what the challenge or the problem or the question might be, what would be the good basis for a project, so they can leave with something that they can work on. It's almost like what I say sometimes, it's almost a little bit of summer planning time to get ready for school year, so there's time to do that, and during that time, I like to spend as much time as I can with individual teachers or 
tables of teachers or teams of teachers and talking about their projects in more detail and coaching them to the next step. So uh, when people leave, they have an opportunity to come away with something that's useful to them. They know what PBL is. They know what it isn't. They know how to distinguish PBL from projects, and they are ready for the next step. Thank you so much, Tom, for joining me. If you are looking to get started with your project-based learning journey or simply want to refine your processes, please go to teacherspd.net slash workshops and you can access more information to attend our upcoming project-based learning workshop in Sydney when Tom comes to join us in November. Thank you so much, Tom, for joining me. Thank you, Dan. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Effective Teaching with Dan Jackson. Please visit teacherspd.net for more effective teaching strategies and online professional development.